Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the Bite Size Learning Podcast presented by professional Oklahoma educators. I'm Jason Bings, the Director of Professional Learning at POE and the host of this podcast. This is the second episode of our podcast, and today we're tackling a topic that is fresh on the minds of many of you. If you're an educator in Oklahoma, you have shifted to distance learning for the remainder of the current year due to COVID-19. What we're doing in Oklahoma would most appropriately be termed emergency distance learning instead of virtual learning or distance learning or anything else like that. True distance learning would have a much longer lead-up time to launch. This emergency distance learning has taken on many forms because of the varying availability of broadband and devices across the state and nation. For this episode, I would like to offer some ideas for those of you that are setting up virtual classrooms. You're likely getting guidance from your district or other agencies regarding best practices and policies. What I offer you is not meant to replace any existing policy your district may have in place, but is intended to enhance what you're doing. When I talk about virtual classrooms, I'm talking about basically two formats of instruction. The first is synchronous video conferencing. The second is asynchronous instruction through an LMS, uh, or Learning Management System, if you don't know the acronym. I want to spend a little time on both, if possible, but most of what I cover will apply to the video conferencing side of virtual instruction. When it comes to virtual instruction, there are a few things to keep in mind that apply across the board. One of the most important is to limit the personally identifiable information, or PII. I know that you're excited to get to interact with your students again, and sharing that excitement on social media is great if you have permission. Always fall back on your district policy for sharing student information and abide by those guidelines. If you're within your district guidelines, make sure you have permission from parents. Districts often employ one of two methods for gaining permission to post. It is usually an opt-out policy or implied consent, which means they have to tell you if they don't want anything posted. This is usually handled through some sort of disclaimer uh, that's listed in the enrollment information during the enrollment process. If it isn't an opt-out policy, then it is likely an opt-in policy or explicit consent, which means the parents signify they give you permission to post and will often signify which different formats you have permission for. Either way, make sure you have permission before you put pictures of your students on social media. I know some of you are thinking that you have your social media set up so that only certain people can view your posts, which is great. But what if one of them takes a screenshot and shares your post? At that point, you've lost every bit of privacy you thought you had with your privacy settings. You have no control over where that information will be posted after that. Another point of concern with posting pictures of your virtual classroom is the inclusion of students' names. I've seen countless posts where there's a picture of a Zoom classroom and you can see the students' first and last names clearly listed. If you have permission to post pictures, make sure that you scrub the names or only have first names. There are some free picture editors like Pixlr Editor that will let you mark through or redact student names with the markup or blurring tool. Take advantage of that. I've posted a link to that in the notes and in the blog post that accompanies this podcast. If you are not redacting that information from your pictures, you are posting several pieces of PII for the world to find and not even realizing it. Not only are you including that photo, but you're including the name. It can easily find be found as to which school you're at, 
the teacher's name, and the town, which gives scammers several vital pieces of information they can use to steal identities, and it may be years down the road before it is realized that the student's identity has been stolen. You also need to keep in mind that the information you have just posted could easily be accessed by predators or traffickers, and posting that much information gives them several leads in finding their next victim or victims. I'm not trying to be alarmist with this, but it's something you need to be very careful about. Another thing to be careful of is how you're inviting students to the meeting. Do not share it on social media, because several trolls have been searching for meeting codes so they can join the class meeting. Once in, they attempt to hijack the meeting in some form or fashion, and either share inappropriate images or download files to other attendees' computers. Until greater restrictions are set up with some of these meeting platforms, you need to be very careful how you handle inviting people to meetings. Using tools like Remind, Seesaw, or Google Classroom to share these links can help with the problem, but if someone outside the group gets access, it can cause headaches that you don't want to deal with while trying to teach. There's a phenomenon that has sprung up through all of this called Zoom bombing, and it's come about as a result of all of these people shifting to virtual meetings. In essence, people are scouring social media looking for links to virtual meetings, then joining the meeting and taking control of various aspects of the meeting. There are reported incidences of Zoom bombers taking control of the pen and drawing inappropriate images on the screen, sharing their screen and displaying pornographic images, sharing files to other attendees that contain pornographic images, ransomware, or malicious content. This is a phenomenon that is possible in several different online meeting platforms, but seems to have gained the most attention in Zoom. The reason why it appears more in Zoom is because of the ease of access and use that Zoom allows. They've built their platform on those aspects that it's easy to use so that more people will be willing to use the tool. They haven't focused as much on the security side of these issues, but they're working to remedy that situation now. If you'd like more information about this, I've included links to an article from EdSurge and one from NPR that will give you some more information. They can be found in the blog post and the show notes that accompany this episode. I'll provide more information on the steps you can take to secure your Zoom meetings in the blog and the show notes with pictures and recommendations. Another setting to keep in mind, if it's available on your platform, is to not allow attendees in the room until the host is there. This is a safety stopgap for you as a teacher. You also need to make sure that you're the last one to leave the meeting so it completely closes. In Zoom, you have the option to end the meeting for all. Currently, that's not an option in Google Meet. Okay, so how do you prevent Zoom bombing from occurring? Now I'm using Zoom bombing as a generic term because it can happen on other platforms. Since it's most prevalent in Zoom, that's where we're going to look and spend the majority of our time. So let's look at some of the security settings in Zoom. Depending on how you have access to Zoom will determine how much control you have over some of your settings. I'm working from the settings available in the free account. Hopefully your district has purchased a plan for you to use and they have set up some of the security for you. If you are using the free plan like me, then here are some of the settings I would implement, and I'll walk you through these step by step. So after signing in on Zoom.com, and I'm assuming that you already have an account created at this point, but when you sign in, you're taken to the Meetings tab by default. And so over on the left-hand side, you'll want to choose Settings under the Personal section. So it's Profile, Meetings, Webinar, Recordings, and Settings. So choose Settings, and in the Settings tab, there are several options to choose from. And I'm just going to scroll through the options and tell you how I would set up each of these if it were my classroom. At the top of the list, you should have options for host video and participant video. 
These determine the default settings of video when you start the meeting. I would turn both of these on so that when the meeting starts, you can be seen by your students and you can see them. Moving down the list, the next thing we see is audio type. I would leave this set to both. This will allow the option for participants to join by telephone if the audio is not coming through clearly for them. So if, they're, if they've got poor broad, broadband connectivity, this is a great option for them. Below audio type is join before host. I suggest that you turn this option off. What this will do is prevent students from being in the room unsupervised. Even in a virtual environment, you don't want to leave your class unsupervised. The personal meeting room setting will be a personal preference. If you want to use the same room every time, you can turn this option on. But remember, if that info gets posted somewhere, like on social media, you could end up with unwanted guests in there. So one way to prevent that is to create a new ID, new ID for each meeting. The drawback there is you have to send out the link every time you schedule a meeting. Continuing down the screen, you have a second option for personal meeting ID. This option is when you use the instant meeting through the Zoom meeting scheduler or from the personal meeting room tab. Below that are some password settings. If these are on, attendees will need a password that is included in their invite to join the meeting. This is one more added layer of security for you, but it does potentially add an extra step for your students. The next option that you should see is to embed the password in the join link. So when you set up the meeting and begin to invite people, what this will do is it creates a link where they can just click on it and it takes them straight into the meeting. They don't have to know the password or anything else. It just jumps them straight in and loads it automatically for them. If you're requiring a password and have this option turned on, make absolutely sure you do not post the link on social media. If you do, it allows potential Zoom bombers direct access to your meeting. Below that, you see the option to mute participants upon entry. I would turn that option on. This way you don't have a ton of, of chaotic noise going on. And it also gets your students used to practicing, uh, going over and unmuting themselves when they need to talk. The upcoming meeting reminder, that's purely a personal preference. The encryption option is one you don't really need to worry about in most cases because if you're doing this from home, it likely doesn't apply. And if you know what the H323 and, and SIP are, then you probably don't need help setting up any of the rest of these settings. Below that is your first option to control how the chat features are used in, the, in your meeting. The first slider is dependent on your class and the procedures you have in place. If you mark the Prevent Participants from Saving Chat, it prevents you from using the autosave feature later, so keep that in mind. Next on your list is a setting for private chat. I would turn this one off. I would also turn on auto-saving chats and turn on the play sound when participants join or leave. When you turn that one on, you'll instantly get a few more options. From those new options that show up, I would choose Heard by Host Only. That way it's less distracting for your students. And then the next one, I would mark uh, record and play their own voice for participants joining by telephone. This gives you another uh, layer of accountability in there as uh, that kind of puts some of that accountability back onto your attendees, onto your students. Personally, I turn off the feedback to Zoom. Uh, this just makes things less complicated for your students. I also turn off the end of meeting survey. Uh, I just I want to get rid of some of those extra distractions that my students might be having to deal with. Both of those options being turned off helps with that. The next option is to turn on allow the host to put attendees on hold. What this will do is let you remove someone from the room 
if you end up with some inappropriate behavior taking place or if someone gets into your room that shouldn't be. So I would turn that one on. Below that, it says to turn on Always Show Meeting Control Bar. That's a personal preference. I would turn that on myself. And I would also turn on Show Zoom Windows during Screen Share. But those are just personal preferences for me and how I like to run things. So next you'll see Turn On Screen Sharing. So what this does is it allows you to share your screen and gives you the options that you need to allow your participants to share their screen if you want to go that direction. And so after you turn on screen sharing, you get the options to choose who can share. In most cases, I would set this to host only. But if you need your students to be able to show what they're working on, you can switch it to all participants. Keeping it as host only prevents unwanted guests from sharing and it increases your room security. If you leave the annotation option on, it gives participants the ability to write on the screen. I would probably turn that one off myself. Uh, there are instances of people getting into rooms and taking control of the pen and drawing inappropriate images on the screen, so that's why I would, I would suggest starting with that one turned off. Next on the list are the whiteboard settings. If you're wanting collaboration, you may want this one on. If you don't need that collaboration component of the whiteboards, I would turn it off to prevent others from taking control of it and using it inappropriately, just building in that, that security for you. I would also turn off remote control unless you want to give access to someone else to control your screen that you're sharing. So in some instances it might be necessary uh, for you to have your screen displayed and then have somebody else manipulate the mouse and, and direct through part of it. Uh, that's perfectly okay when it's needed, but if you're not going to need that functionality, I'd leave that turned off. I would turn on the nonverbal feedback. This gives you one more way to communicate. If you're trying to check for understanding, students can uh, leave some nonverbal feedback there. Try it out. See if it actually works the way you're hoping for it to. If it turns out to be a distraction, come back in and turn it off. The next section we get into um, where it talks about remove participants. The allow remove participants to rejoin option, it's still being tested out and so um, I'm not really sure how that's going to, to work uh, since they're still updating that. So there's not a ton of information on that part available yet. Now some of the advanced features that you'll see in the next section may be great options for your classroom. The first one that I like is the option for breakout rooms. What breakout rooms would do is allow you to assign students to small groups for discussions and collaboration. And you can actually set those groups up ahead of time. So if you need uh, like five different table groups or whatever set up, you can create those ahead of time when you schedule your meeting. And then you can just drop attendees in as they come in. The next one there, the remote support, what that allows is you to have that one-on-one -on -one connection within your call between you and one of your participants. And so if you need to just talk to one person, uh, you've got that option. The kicker on this one though is that if you turn it on, you lose the breakout rooms. I'm hoping that they'll adjust that feature so that you can have both of those on at the same time, but right now you can't. Next thing on the list are the, the closed caption options. And currently those are dependent on third-party apps, and I'm not sure which apps work well with that or it requires you to have some participant in there transcribing the meeting as you go. That's one that's going to involve a little bit more testing and playing with to see if that's going to work the way that you want it to. Those are options. Anytime you can throw in captioning, I would do it. Um, but since that requires some extra effort right now, I would stick to the basics, then you can add that other later. The next option you see there is the far-end camera control. That's not going to apply 
in most situations in the classroom, or at home especially. But instead, this is more for the times where you've got a dedicated conference room, and it's got one of those push-to-zoom PTZ cameras in there that swivels and can zoom in on certain parts of the room. That's what that gives control of. The next section there has no bearing on security at all, um, but it's the virtual background. And what it allows you to do is set up a custom background that can help you enhance your instruction. If you have a newer computer, you can customize the backdrop pretty easily. If you have an older computer, uh, you may need to have a green screen or something like that behind you just to make it work properly. But it could be a fun way to enhance your lesson or facilitate some sort of a virtual field trip. So those are some good options to play with and kind of make your, your classroom more fun. After the virtual background, I would skip all the way down to the waiting room tab and turn on the waiting room option. What this does is allow you to put everyone in a room until you admit them into the main room. This is a great security feature that would prevent unwanted guests from joining your room. So it throws them kind of in a holding pin and then you can give them permission to come in and join. And in that section where you can put people on hold, what it does is it kicks them back to the waiting room until you can get back in there and address, address the situation. Below that is a join from your browser link. If you have people that are unable to download the software necessary to use all of the features of the Zoom app, um, I would go ahead and, and turn that on. It just gives an extra added option so that people can get connected. They don't have as many of the tools, but it does allow them to get into the classroom a little bit easier than, than they would normally. So just to facilitate for your students, I would go ahead and do that. Below that are a couple of email notifications. I'd leave those turned on. And then the next thing that I would adjust uh, is the, the blur snapshot on iOS task switcher. So I would turn that one on. All right, so that's pretty much the settings side of things. Now, when you schedule a, a meeting, you will need to go back to the meetings tab or click on the schedule a meeting option that's at the top of the screen. So the meetings tab is over on the left. The schedule a meeting icon button is towards the top of the screen to the left of your profile picture. It should automatically populate the preferences that you just set up when you start to schedule a meeting, but I would double check them just to be sure. Especially when you go down to the bottom where you've got the meetings options, it does give you the option to activate the waiting room and you can also pre-assign your breakout rooms here. Alright, so that covers many of the ways that you can increase the security of your virtual classrooms. It's definitely not a definitive guide on the subject. So what else do you need to keep in mind when video conferencing with your students? Well, one thing I would do is make sure your students know how to mute their microphones and adjust their view so that it minimizes distractions. You do have the option in most cases to mute everybody at once, but if your platform does not allow that, make sure they know how to mute, mute their microphones so that it makes it less distracting for people coming in. I would also develop a procedure for when st students need to ask a question. In Zoom and in a few other teleconferencing apps, there's a hand raise feature that you can enable. That way you can call on individual students as they have questions. You don't have to worry about them interrupting or jumping in the middle of, of somebody else's question if you've got this procedure set up. You can also use the chat function of the room to allow them to ask questions. And so you can usually control who they send the questions to. I would set it so that they can only send to you or that they send to the whole group. And you really need to base that on your class and what you think is the best option for them. 
you know your class well enough to determine which one you think is going to work the best for you. Just like your regular classroom, you need to be prepared. Have any files you want to share with them ready ahead of time. This way, you maximize your transition time and you can spend as much time as possible focused on the lesson. Now I had hoped to have time to cover the asynchronous side of distance learning through an LMS such as Edmodo or Google Classroom or Canvas, uh, but that's going to have to come in a later post. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Please share and comment to let us know how we can help you and others. You may leave your comments on your podcatcher of choice, but to guarantee we receive them in a timely manner, go to bit.ly slash bite-sized pod and complete the form. If you would like to schedule a professional learning session for your school or an online meeting, you can send an email to jason at apoe.org. If you would like more information about professional Oklahoma educators, check out our website, www.apoe.org. You can find the links to this podcast and blog under the Resources tab on the APOE website or by going to poebitesizedlearning.blogspot.com. POE can also be found on Facebook at APOE.org and on Twitter at ProfOklahedu.com.